Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down we dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. And a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. History of evolution has taught us that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome. This is Bite the Pen. I'm Jen, and sitting across from me is I am Charlotte. It's well to meet you all. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> on this quarantine afternoon, oh my god. <laughs> every time it's like you're from uh, the 19. 19- 50s like well really, yeah really happy go lucky yeah i just made some cookies <laughs> come on in ring ring exactly. ring, ring. <laughs> so how are you i am terrific great without a job this is paradise i am so happy for you hopefully your roommate is nice i mean yeah she's, she's probably okay not, <laughs> you know living with people what can i say wow but your roommate, I heard, was a joy. Oh, my God. She bakes cookies. <laughs> well, really, how are you doing in quarantine? Fine. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Lots of reading. Writing. Lots of writing. It's time to do art. Our friend Ashley's been painting. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about, how do you say it? Archetypes? Archetypes. Arc. As in Noah's Ark. Yes. What kind of archetype are you? Well, I like giraffes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Do you want to tell us about the book that we were using to aid us? Absolutely. I was assigned this book in Corinne's Hero's Journey class in college. Thank you, Corinne, yet again. <laughs> but the book is called The Writer's Journey by Christopher Vogler. And Vogler got most of his materials from... Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, published early 40s. I mean, he takes a lot of Joseph Campbell's concepts, but he simplifies it, especially for the writer. So it's a great read, and I recommend it for any writer, reader, psychiatrist. It really does sort of, we'll talk about it, but it really does sort of apply to many different things, not just writing. Absolutely. So before we break into it, do you want to tell me about perhaps an archetype that you like or relate to or are fascinated by? Oh, I thank you. I shall. Because I got really fascinated by the trickster. The trickster is an archetype. Very mischievous. Never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Coco Pelli. You Southwesterners, you would know of Coco Pelli as a common trickster. The flute guy, right? The flute guy. Yeah. He just hunched over. Exactly. But I got fascinated by the devil trickster figure. And that was Brother Mouton's fault, by the way. (laughs) Is he a brother of Satanism? No, he's not. Ah. But he's very literate. He knows his Bible in and out in every category, Mm. not just religious, but historical context, theology. Mm. Uh, He does a lot of language translations. Mm. So one of the things he pointed out in the Bible in this class we took in college was that Satan was never the Lucifer fallen angel figure, but rather the original trickster. It became a lot less scary to talk about the devil in terms of Christianity once I found that out. 
And then it became kind of cool to recognize that the trickster was the archetype that brought about balance. So in my mind, he was sort of meant to break Eden at the beginning. Eden was just going to be a fantasy that never changed, which is dangerous because that only brings about death eventually. Hmm. Meaning in my head, the Garden of Eden was never going to last unless somebody broke it. Hence the snake as Satan, the very first trickster. Interesting. He kind of liberated us in a way. It's not quite that simple, but Mm -hmm. that's how my mind interpreted it. So. That's why I'm like, trickster, yeah. So he's not necessarily evil. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. That's a great answer, actually. I appreciate that answer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> we're making no big claims here. We're, we're just being honest. There's more research to be done. Yeah. And another podcast for that subject. Yeah. But don't Christ. Okay, this is just a sidebar. But don't Christians want you to be really afraid of him? Yeah. Okay. That's okay. definitely their construct. They, okay. they invented Lucifer. Oh. The Bible only mentions Satan. Oh, interesting. Well, actually, maybe the New Testament mentions Lucifer, now that I think about it. But in any case, Lucifer was a newer construct. Yeah. That's where the shadow comes in. Such a cool title. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> Fallen Angel, Prince of Darkness, Lucifer, those are all the contemporary interpretations, whereas Satan, Satan, meant right. trickster, mm. and that's the Old Testament. Gotcha. Well, I hope you're enjoying our religious corner with Charlotte. Sorry. <laughs> that's enough of that. <laughs> no, I think it's fascinating. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> But Jen, I am so curious, what <laughs> archetype you most are fascinated by? I am totally in love with the Ice Queen. And the Ice Queen doesn't always have to be female either. That's just like the title has been given. It's any villain or antagonist that is doing something bad, because that's what they do, but who slowly begins defrosting due to, usually it's due to a character, but it can be other things as well. It can be environment change. It could be a cast of characters. But over time, they basically work through their trauma, which is usually what's caused them to shut themselves off. Mm. And it brings them back to being a person again and humanizing them. And that's like my favorite thing to witness and to like engage with. I think, you know, just psychologically, I'm just like fascinated with how do we work through things that like rip our souls out yeah and how do we like stuff it back in our chest i like that there's room there for something besides a violent interaction between the villain and the hero that makes me feel better about the world (laughs) exactly okay so let's break into it do you want to kind of take us through some things before we crack into the archetypes let's define what it is i want to start off by reading vogler's introduction to archetypes He says, as soon as you enter the world of fairy tales and myths, you become aware of reoccurring character types and relationships, questing heroes, heralds who call them to adventure, wise old men and women who give them magical gifts, threshold guardians who seem to block their way, shape-shifting fellow travelers who confuse and dazzle them, shadowy villains who try to destroy them, tricksters who upset the status quo and provide comic relief. In describing these common character types, symbols, and relationships, the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung employed the term archetypes, meaning ancient patterns of personality that are the shared heritage of the human race. Love you, Jung. Love you so much. Yeah, it's a perfect definition. And he's absolutely right. They can be personalities internally. They can be personalities in characters around you. And the one we interpret as the archetypes manifest in other characters That's their dramatic function. In a story, they are characters that help the hero. 
but it's very external, like they're out there, right? They're their own physical character. But the other way of thinking about archetypes is internally, meaning the hero absorbs each personality in themselves. They like soak it in so they engulf every archetype. I, I think in Buddhism, they call that viveka, hmm. the absorption of archetypes. Hmm. And in story, the hero must absorb these characters, these personalities, these symbolisms, functions in order to end their story successfully. So that's like the psychological journey of archetypes. Right. Inner psych psychology and outer is more of like the literal in a lot of cases. Exactly. So the literal, when we speak of literal, we speak of external characters that are influencing the hero. And are representing these archetypes. Exactly. Yeah. So Vogler also defines story as metaphors for the general human situation with characters who embody universal are typical qualities comprehensive to the group as well as the individual. So we as the audience see the heroes as a window into the metaphor. We become them because we want to have a shared experience. This is how we learn about ourselves is by learning about the hero's journey. It's very early life development. Like these are a lot of the stages you find in somebody that's from zero to, you know, 15 on to 25, you know? Yeah. These are very much like a part of that process individually as well as universally. And stories have always been there. Even in Neolithic times, there's the movement of somebody over the fire, right, would have eventually a pattern to it. And those same cultures around the world would have similar patterns, hence what Joseph Campbell calls the collective unconscious. Even if we weren't in communication with each other, we are psychologically the same. So these archetypes, especially these eight basic that we're going to talk about, they are evidence both internally in our personal dreams as well as in the collective, which we call myth or stories, especially now in movies, everybody is globally connected. So everybody knows more or less what a movie is supposed to be. It will be beneficial to hear some examples of these as well. And that'll make it a little bit clearer. For me, it helped a lot because it can, some of them are kind of were more difficult to grasp than others. And actually, Vogler mentions this too, that it's helpful not to think of an archetype as one permanent thing. They exist temporarily. They exist as masks worn by various characters. Maybe one character is multiple archetypes. Because each archetype is a function, they can show up in many ways in a story. Even the hero. The hero in our modern movies, they can change, they can turn, they can be cast off to another character. It's so much changing, which is good because we should be evolutionizing the way we tell stories. Right. But on the basic level, the archetypes appear somewhere in the story. It's all the same guts. It's just in a different position. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> a weird metaphor. Great metaphor. <laughs> what is your gut today? <laughs> I think it's up in my ear. So, yeah, I have a couple examples of that as well to sort of show what it means to be primarily one archetype, but wear the mask of another and vice versa. So Vogler talks about eight common archetypes and those are as follows. We put them in order of what made sense to us in terms of how a story would play out, but you'll see them throughout stories and come in and out and come in at different times. So just FYI. So we have the hero, the herald, a mentor, threshold guardian, ally, shapeshifter, trickster, and the shadow. We found that this would be a helpful episode to start with before Jen and I go into specific archetypes in the future. Yeah. So we understand what we're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, as always, I'm curious to hear what other people like in terms of archetypes. What archetypes do you gravitate towards and why? And 
what do you get from that archetype that you don't get from another? You know, I think that's, it can say a lot about somebody in a good way, not in a psychoanalytical way necessarily, although that too. <laughs> yeah. and, and it keeps us complex. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes us understand that we're complex beings and we can recognize it. We're not all so lucky to be Vulcan, you know? <laughs> we don't have to think about these things. So the goal of this episode then is to talk about these eight archetypes. And the question Bogler asks is what is their dramatic function and what is their psychological function? Mm -hmm. So that's how we're going to each talk about the archetypes. But then at the end of each description, we're going to talk about an example of those archetypes in two movies that we have selected. The first one... Wonder Woman, DC I've never heard superhero. Of it. No, I have never heard of Wonder Woman. <laughs> Guess I should have watched it so I could talk about it. We've <laughs> like seen it a thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have a shrine to Wonder Woman in our living room. Not at all. Don't come into our living room. <laughs> There's very consistent archetypes in this film. And that's why we call it the classical example. Because we're going to talk about this movie, I'm going to give you a quick summary of it. Diana Prince, born to Zeus and the Queen of the Amazons, is called away from her island of warriors to defeat Ares, the god of war, who is presumably the cause of World War II. I thought Ares was a woman. Is Ares a dude? Ares is a dude. At least I think so. No, I think it is. I mean, otherwise, I don't know why they would have changed that aspect. Right? It would have been cool. It would have been like two women like battling it out. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. But maybe because like I associate it with my sun sign. I don't know. Oh. I don't know. Fascinating. Anyway, I that was a great description. If you haven't seen Wonder Woman, what have you been doing with your life? <laughs> so our other example is a contemporary example. Our example is a temporary example. You probably haven't heard of it. It's called Field of Dreams. It was made back in the day when Kevin Costner was younger. Not young, but younger. If you haven't seen it, again, classic, really great. I'm going to give you a description of it if you haven't seen it. But we really wanted to have two movies that were addressing maybe two different age groups as well. And I think that that was a good choice. And superhero stuff is really popular right now. But I think magical realism is such a rich topic in film because you don't see it as much in film. It's fun to see it when they do it well. And they did it well. Iowa farmer Ray hears a mysterious voice one night in his cornfield saying, If you build it, he will come. Despite taunts of lunacy... Ray builds a baseball diamond on his land. Afterward, the ghosts of great players start emerging from the crops to play ball. But, as Ray learns, this field of dreams is about much more than bringing former baseball greats out to play. And we call it contemporary because the archetypes in this film are more up to debate and they change a little bit more. More characters play multiple roles of archetypes. There's a lot, and I would even say there's multiple heroes, because once you hear the definition of each archetype, you're going to see how in Field of Dreams, they mess with that. They switch it up. And it's pretty seamless. Oh, yeah. Which makes it more difficult to, like you said, to pick what is which, but also makes it more interesting, too. Absolutely. So we broke up the eight between us, so we're going to go back and forth. Arrogance and fear still keep you from learning the simplest and most significant lesson of all. Which is? It's not about you. Our first archetype, the hero, which in Greek translates to protect and serve. Okay. Have you heard that before? (laughs) L-A-P-D. That's Mm. their motto. 
So that tells you something about what the hero does. It shouldn't be what tells me that. <laughs> That's more of the classic hero. The civic duty or the patriot, those are the very gung-ho hero types. But that's not all the hero is, so just keep that in mind. In general, what Volgler says is that the hero needs to be our window into the metaphor that is story. And in order to do that, he says, they must first be universal as well as unique. They have to have characteristics that we relate to, right? They eat, they sleep, and they have to be real and complex they have to have flaws. We have flaws. And if they lack flaws, then they're too perfect. Mm. And perfection, there's there's nowhere to go. So when you have flaws and you are relatable, then that's the perfect window into our own stories because we can relate to something like that. Another dramatic function is that they need to be able to grow. They need to be able to learn things. Every story is going to have very quick conflicts because our lives, we live, what, 100 years so we have 100 years generally to mm -hmm. learn things and to grow from it. But in a story, you're condensing all of that very quickly and you're learning how the character is going to react to those conflicts. And that says something about their character, how they interact with those conflicts. And so how we deal with COVID, for example, that's part of our story right now. That's going to say a lot about who we are. Right. Vogler says they are usually the most active in the story. They take control of their fate. They take the most responsibility. So when things happen, it's usually either to them or because of them. Okay. And that's not always true of the hero. We'll see that there's there's different types. But generally, the hero is the one that's most active in the story. They have to be, right? Right. I mean, if, if they have to be relatable, we have to see what they're doing. <laughs> right. And they wouldn't be doing anything if they were perfect and everything was fine exactly yeah there wouldn't be a story right it's like oh my name is bill i am perfect <laughs> the end the end <laughs> there's nothing to be learned right and it's not relatable for us right the other two aspects which again are talked about symbolically a lot the first concept is sacrifice sacrifice translated is to make holy h-o-l-y Yes, to make holy. <laughs> so when you made sacrifices, you're giving up something of the old. Could be a loved one. Um, you might be letting go of old habits. You have to leave the ordinary world. So that's a lot of comfort that's left behind mm -hmm. in order to make room for the new. Right. So in the divine realm, things like the ultimate sacrifice, which is death. The hero dies in order to bring about change, save a people, to learn a bigger lesson. Braveheart. I don't know why I'm thinking of Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's in a lot of, he's cast in a lot of those classic hero roles. Mm -hmm. That's why. The Patriot. That's another big one. Master and Commander. That was him, right? No, that wasn't him. That was somebody else. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, that's the soldier hero is, mm. plays this a lot. They mm. usually have an ultimate sacrifice and it usually is themselves. Okay. But again, it doesn't have to be the physical sacrifice. It doesn't always have to be their death that changes. It's maybe a death of an old demon, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. They have to overcome and live above their demons. That's letting go. I was just, I thought of uh, Sean from Shaun of the Dead. Because like before his life, he's like meandering and he can't make a choice and he like likes his girlfriend, but he won't change. And then in the end, he changed and left all of that behind without having to die. Right. Which is great because it's Shaun of the Dead, you know? And living in the <laughs> new world as it is. Right. And giving to the new world, being a participant in the new world. Right. So those who don't literally die have to then be the boon for their community. They have to have the new knowledge to be shared. Gotcha. And that was the second aspect, by the way, was death. 
either okay. symbolically or an actual death. The hero must experience a great loss. I mean, it could be great as in it's great to them. It's mm-hmm. like an inner, again, you're overcoming inner demon. So you've changed in your personality. Right. And that makes you a higher being. Mm-hmm. So you function higher because you've learned something. That's all that that means. But again, okay. Joseph Campbell's books talk about it like it's a very real symbol. So Jesus, for example, the ultimate sacrifice, that's thought of quite often because the imagery for that is so hyperbolized. What right? does that mean? It's dramatic. It's, mm. it's colossal. It's on an epic scale. Okay. So something like Mel Gibson in The Patriot, that's an epic scale. Okay. Because there's like a huge battle to be won, a huge evil to be conquered. Interesting. But again, it doesn't have to be that big. It can be all... A smaller scale, but just as much sacrifice being made. Internally. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So those are the last last two dramatic functions Vogler talks about. Okay. But since we already tapped into it, what he calls the psychological function of the hero, and this is how he writes it. According to Freud, the hero must transcend the bounds and illusions of her ego, the ego being the I or the individual, when she leaves her family and cuts the umbilical cord of who she was, that's her chance to explore what makes her different than everybody else. After that exploration, she must then learn what it means to be the all. What he calls the transcendence of the ego is the key point in the hero's journey. So how does a hero transcend, for example? And this is what he writes about then. <laughs> and this is where the archetypes come in. She must then absorb the outside personalities. And he writes it, that the archetypes represent the possibility of the hero for good or ill. A hero sometimes proceeds through the story, gathering and incorporating the energy and traits of other characters. She learns from the other characters, fusing them into a complete human being who has picked up something from everyone she has met along the way. So that would be the next stage of her journey. If, however, she skips that stage, that's the important piece. If she stays in the ego, okay, just exploring herself, she then turns into what Joseph Campbell calls the dangerous tyrant holdfast. Hmm. She's the hoarder of benefits who becomes a curse to her world. I see. She becomes un- unchangeable. Like a glutton, sounds like. Yeah. Again, that's the danger of being stuck in the cycle. When you've detached yourself from the family, you're exploring who you are, and you start to gather information about the new world, but you do it so you can benefit only. Then your ego inflates. Right. And that's when it becomes dangerous because you're the hoarder. You're not Pulling. returning. Yeah. <laughs> you're not giving anything back. You're you're creating an imbalance. And Campbell says if that happens, then in nature, the balance must come somehow. Okay. It must come back. So a hero might arrive to defeat mm. her, for example. Because or- you like messed up your journey. You're no longer the hero because you're now a hoarder. Right. It doesn't have anything to do with you. The fact that you're hoarding is changing everybody else's balance. Right. It's not just about you. Right. Even though you think it's all about you. Exactly. (laughs) You can't live in isolation as a hero. It doesn't happen. Right. And if it does, then something is birthed to Mm. defeat you. Or let's say a new hero comes along and tries to push the tyrant back into the cycle. Like, why don't you continue because you can't, you can't stay here. You can't be the tyrant anymore. You must continue. In which case, she must learn to live above her demons and to change. Interesting. Okay. Right? Change or die. That's how everything operates. Yeah. But if she does transcend the ego, then the cycle completes to her returning to her ordinary world. Okay. And it could be back to her family. 
but she now has new knowledge to bring to them. So okay. they change along with her. Okay. Or she remains in the new world as an asset to help the new world develop. I like those ones. Yeah, and I think Joseph Campbell pointed out that mostly in the Western tales, the hero returns to the ordinary world. Interesting. But I think in the Eastern, a lot of Eastern tales have the hero staying in the extraordinary world. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be, this is my opinion. I like the idea of staying in the, the new world. Absolutely. And building from there as opposed to going back. But I don't know. <laughs> and it sometimes depends on if your ordinary world needs you. Maybe right. they don't need you, in which case you were always meant to leave and never come back. Right. I'm not as tragically as that sounds, but meaning <laughs> your change belongs in a different realm. Right. And hopefully by the end of the cycle, you've reached that divinity, the new knowledge, the higher thinker. So that's what we call the, the divine realm. And then she's free to become the mentor, right? The one who teaches, mm. the one who protects. So next, Vogler describes the types of heroes, which is really interesting. I find this part fascinating because this is where we can get more examples of heroes we're used to. For example, what he calls the willing hero. We've talked about this hero. He is the, the knight in shining armor, the oh Jesus <laughs> complex. They're the soldiers. Interesting. Doing it for duty and honor, for a larger cause. Revenge. <laughs> Does that count? Usually not revenge. Oh, okay. It's usually for a noble cause. Oh, okay. Another type is the unwilling hero. Okay. And that's usually the one who doesn't want to leave their ordinary world. So, like, Harry Potter would be the first one, would be the willing hero, right? Because he wants to get the hell out of his situation. Yes, and he wants to become active. And he wants to become active. And then, like, an unwilling hero is one that fights... The call to action. Right. But, he, yeah, they fight the change that's coming. Right. They're comfortable in their ordinary world. Right. Either that or they're insecure in a lot of ways and they need some pushing. I see. And sometimes that could be in the form of a mentor, somebody who is looking out for them, pushing them out the door literally. Okay. Or it could be that they have no choice. A natural disaster, for example. Mm. They don't want to be the hero, but they have to be. They have to start solving problems because the natural world calls them to do it. Uh, yeah, and like nobody else's, right? Yeah. Do you find those more or less compelling? I feel like that's more compelling to the contemporary audience. Okay. Because a lot of us can't relate to the classical anymore because we're yeah. too global for that. Yeah. We've lost our independent cultures. Interesting. Which is good and bad. And at some point, they have to become the willing hero. They have right. to accept the challenge. Right. That's a pretty short window, right? Exactly. Okay. The anti-hero. This is everybody's favorite. Okay. <laughs> They're usually the thieves, the vigilantes, those who are going against the law, but they're still sympathetic. Okay. And Robin generally Hood? good. Robin Hood. Yes. Okay. Aladdin. Um, Aladdin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Diamond in the Rough. That's another kind of sub-archetype. Batman is a big one. Yeah. Okay. Right? The vigilante who's doing good for the greater good. Right. Actually, Vogler says there's two types of in this oh. category. The first type, like I said, is Batman. He's pretty sympathetic. And he acts like a conventional hero, but there's usually some wounded quality there. And it might take longer for him to overcome it. He might still be playing the hero, but he still hasn't overcome the shadowy parts. I feel you. But again, that's make, that makes it compelling because we sense that he'll have to eventually. Right. Or be destroyed. Hence the second type. Mm -hmm. The second type of anti-hero is the one who never overcomes the inner oh, demons. That's so sad. It is sad. It means their flaws get the best of them yeah. and they get stuck in the cycle. Yeah. 
And it's also called the tragic hero. Yeah. Good examples of that are Anakin Skywalker, who Mm -hmm. later becomes Darth Vader. There's the loner hero. This one is mostly in Westerns. This is the cowboy who's estranged or the outlaw who's estranged from society and living in isolation. Hmm. But in the second act of the story, they usually join a bigger ensemble. So they become active, usually unwillingly or Hmm. for reasons that don't seem very heroic. Right. It's just that they do it, you know. Hmm. I can totally see that for Western. Right. Or like Waterworld. Would that count? I don't remember Waterworld, but okay. I'm sure it does. Yeah, he's kind of like a loner, doesn't want to be involved. His new tribe is two people, so it's not a big one. But exactly. it forces him into all these other things that he wasn't prepared to do. Exactly. Okay. So he starts off as an unwilling hero, a loner hero. Right. And gets probably pushed into action. I was going to say, yeah, he's totally unwilling. <laughs> and he can either go back into isolation after the journey mm. or he can remain with the group. Do you find that like this kind of hero is common then with stories that rely on nature more heavily than in society? I mean, like a Western, you have a lot of like open, expansive space and water world is like the ocean. You know what I mean? Is there more opportunity there? I think you can be in isolation no matter where you are. I agree. But I was just thinking, I guess, in terms of like film and seeing these stories that's the perfect opportunity to visually see it yes is in a western where there is country there's the option of country life or city life because visually we can associate isolation with nature or you're in the city and you're always exposed to people right the group oriented hero is the next one. Oh, okay and that's more typical of the classic hero okay. because there is a tribe that they must return to And they are sent forth to find new knowledge to either protect the tribe, to energize the tribe, to revive the tribe. And most heroes are a group hero in some context or to some degree. Mm. Because when we say that the hero must return to the ordinary world, well, that's the tribe. Right. Their example was Simba in Lion King. Mm. He's their king. Right. So he must return to them. Right. And the last one is the catalyst hero. which is really fascinating to me. They act heroically, but they don't change that much themselves. Interesting. Their purpose instead is to change others. Mm. So they're probably one of many heroes in stories. Mm. They're there the whole time, and yeah, they may grow a little bit, but probably not as much as the ensemble because they're trying to affect them more. Interesting. And a good example they use here is Eddie Murphy from Beverly Hills Cops. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah which we did on a previous episode, which you can listen to. It's called The Venom Problem. Yes, please please look into The Venom Problem. Yes. Eddie Murphy's character is already pretty... Himself. Himself. He's not changing for anybody, even when he goes to this, like, white privileged community. (laughs) He's instead infecting. Yeah. He's influencing two cadets in their police station, and they're the ones that change the most because of him. Judge Reinhold. That's what it is. It's like Judge Reinhold. (laughs) He's the young guy. Oh, he's the one that's like most affected. Yes, that's right. Whereas the older cop is also affected, but not quite as much as the younger cop. Or detective, whatever. It's it's fun to watch him change through Eddie Murphy. It's a pleasurable experience, which I wouldn't expect. Because I would expect that I would want to watch the hero go through all those things. It works out very nicely as a catalyst. Yeah. Cool. That's a good example. Yeah, thanks for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. 
Wonder Woman, we said was the classical example. In a lot of ways, Diana Prince starts off very ignorant. She starts isolated Mm -hmm. on an island where the thoughts are very collective and unchanged. And actually, I think they've been on the island for, what, hundreds and hundreds of years. (laughs) Since the beginning of man, really. So that's a long time to be stagnant. Right. It's, it's yeah. It's interesting because they have like this wealth of knowledge. Like they study a lot, but they're still sort of they're they are developing, but only within these like narrow confines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're the hoarders. Hmm. I mean, they're not shadow yet. They're not hoarding for themselves. I mean, they're right. They, well, to some degree, I guess they are, but they don't expand their knowledge beyond themselves. Right. Self-contained. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So Diana Prince starts with the thought that men on the outside, mankind, is either good or bad. And at the moment, during World War II, men are all bad because they're affected by the god of war, who's Ares. So she goes out to the extraordinary world thinking that it'll be as easy as killing Ares and everybody will be good-hearted and great again. Because that's the only thing that was stopping them was Ares. Or that's what she assumes is the problem. Well, yeah. (laughs) And she's not letting any other interpretation come into her mind. Right. So this is an opportunity to separate from her family, to explore her id, her -hmm. individuality. And she does do that. But more and more so down the line, and as she's fighting the war, she's seeing that there's shades of good and bad in mankind. And that's confusing her. And it feels like deceit. It feels like a disappointment. She feels like they don't deserve her help. She thinks she's already living in the divine. Well, yeah, and their society is pretty, it is pretty forward thinking. So it makes sense that she does feel that way. But it's like the ignorance, like you said, of the innocent, or not ignorance, um, uh, like the arrogance. Exactly. When the truth is kind of, pounded on her she she thinks she kills the god of war and nothing's changed she's in her darkest place right she's saying well no this is the end of my journey because it didn't happen the way it was supposed to right but like any good story there's the new knowledge that she must learn to keep going it could be in the form of a a symbol of an image another character might say something important Mm -hmm. which is what happens in wonder woman she hears very critical information my mother was right. She said the world of men do not deserve you. They don't deserve our help. It's, 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 not, it's not about deserve. deserve it's not, maybe, maybe we don't. But, but it's not about that. It's about what you believe. You don't think I get it after what I've seen out there? You don't think I wish I could tell you that it was one bad guy to blame? It's not. We're all to blame. It's not about deserve. It's about what you believe. Mm. That's the critical information that she must absorb in order to continue her cycle. What do you believe? That means she has to think for herself. Right. And when she does that, when the actual Aries appears, she's able to defeat him on her own terms, mm. not as how others predicted her to defeat him. And she's not blankly believing Aries either, because Aries tempts her. Like any devil trickster character, he tempts her with, well, this can be the new world. Don't you see it? Mm-hmm. He shows her a type of Garden of Eden mm-hmm. with no people. Like, this is where we should live, he tells her. And it's beautiful. And it is. It's beautiful. <laughs> but 
because she's gained knowledge from allies, from foes, from mentors, from a lover, mm-hmm. all that knowledge she's absorbed to become the all. Mm-hmm. So she can't do that. She can't live in the Garden of Eden with right. Ares. It just can't be her story. And she realizes that. And that's what makes it possible for her to defeat him. Mm, right? Cool. Is that knowledge. Mm. And once that's done, she has transcended her ego. And she literally transcends into the sky. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot of literal translation of this psychological journey, which yeah. makes this the classic example. Right. And her being the new weapon for mankind, she stays in the extraordinary world Mm -hmm. to play that part, to protect and to serve. Right. And then in Field of Dreams, Uh (laughs) the contemporary example. And I told you before, I think there's several heroes. Right. The main one being Ray Kinsella. Mm -hmm. He's the narrator and he's the one we follow the most. He is both the willing and the catalyst hero. Okay. Willing as in he doesn't fight the call to action. Like at all. Right. <laughs> as soon as the voice from the field say, if you build it, he will come, he becomes curious. Yeah. It's not that he tries to cast it aside or just think he, he's insane. I mean, yeah. there's a little bit of that. But very little. Right. If anything, curiosity is what pushes him forward. He wants to solve the problem of the voice. Which is like the most human thing ever, right? It is. And it makes him the willing hero. And he's also a catalyst hero. Because in Field of Dreams, the concept is that as soon as he he builds the field for the baseball players and they, they emerge from the field as ghosts, but they're very physical beings, he can see them, they can see him. But the magical realism is that there's an invisible ring around the field where they can only play ball within that ring. Right. And Kinsella is realizing that and he feels very, that's like step number one. He's very proud that he He did solve. (laughs) If you build it, he will come. He's like, yep, got it. There's your field. Yeah. Here's the proof that it's working because these players are emerging. And the first hero in that case is the baseball player, the main baseball player, who is Shoeless Joe Jackson. Ray Liotta. Yes. Mm. Yes. Very great actor. (laughs) Because he tells his story right away. He says, I didn't get to finish playing ball because there was this scandal scandal that stopped their career short. Yeah. So Kinsella is like, oh, my gosh, I'm continuing your journey. I'm being the catalyst for your heroism. Right. Because now you can complete your hero cycle. Right, right. The ball right. player can. So that's one. And then the second voice, if you remember, heal his pain, mm-hmm. ease his pain. Ease his pain. That's it. And Kinsella's like, what the heck? I just did what you asked me to do. You want me to do something else? All right. So this introduces the second hero, who is the writer, Terrence Mann. Mm-hmm. And once Kinsella figures out that that's who's the next hero to help, he goes and seeks him. James Earl Jones. Oh, he's like the I most know. interesting character out of all of he's them. He's awesome and hilarious. <laughs> he is. And he's engulfing the most archetypes, I think, yeah, in this totally. contemporary example. So hero number two, we realize that Terrence Mann is living in isolation and is hoarding. And right? bitter. He even tells the audience he used to be super active in the community and everybody latches on to him wanting him back. His excuse is, no, I'm retired. I want to be alone. I'm done. You've you've killed me. Yeah. And that he doesn't, I think he says something about like not wanting people to look to him anymore. He doesn't want to make the decisions anymore, which is like very like 
hefty. There's a lot of like weight there. Exactly. Yeah. So again, number two, that's another hero who needs to be pushed back into the cycle. Right. And then finally, the third hero, which again is an interesting choice because in a lot of ways he had already completed the journey. He lived in a higher self that wasn't like the ball player, wasn't like Terrence Mann, wasn't even like Kinsella, the main character. Yeah. He had already transcended in a lot of ways because he found his yeah. calling early on. Right. He wanted to be a ball player, but he turned to being a doctor instead. Yeah. But they give him... It's like a regret almost. Like it's not even like he's unfulfilled with his life, which he explains. It's like if there was one thing he could do, right? Because that's what Ray asked him. What would it be? And for him, it was to play once with the with the big ball players. Absolutely. His tragedy was that he he got there, but then he never got to play. That's so sad. It makes him less of a hero in this story because we don't actually see his entire life. We just get that little snippet of a tragedy. Yeah. But that's enough for Kinsella to be like, okay, you're part of it now. Yeah. <laughs> I need to finish your journey right. so you can be peaceful. So how many is that? We got Kinsella, Julius Joe Jackson, Terrence Mann, and then I think the movie calls him Moonlight Graham. Moonlight Graham. Moonlight He's Graham. a famous actor too. I just can't remember his name. Nice. <laughs> right. Who's the completed hero, but we're going to fill in his journey anyway. Right. We're breaking a lot of traditional roles. It, it seems like it's complex, and it sort of is, but the movie plays it wonderfully. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's both tragic and redeeming and smooth oh, it's smooth and it all like it's very russian doll like it all kind of just plays into each other which is really impressive yes yes oh. and at the end kinsella is given the ultimate choice which is to keep the baseball field right and to keep this dream going for those heroes who need it yeah right yeah they'll come ray they'll come <laughs> they will come ray <laughs> Oh, I love that whole scene. Oh, hey, we can play that clip. We could totally play that clip. We should. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has ruled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Ugh, I love that so much. Some of the most beautiful <laughs> quotes. Even as a kid, because I, I watched know. it pretty young. Me Did too, you? yeah. yeah. It, even if you didn't understand what was happening, yeah. just the way... James Earl Jones says those lines. You're like, uh huh. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> it's all worth it. Yeah, I think even yeah. Like as a kid, I still felt the emotional. I always forget the name of this from Aristotle. Catharsis. Catharsis. I I felt it then when I didn't even know understand everything. So imagine, yeah, later. If you haven't seen it, you really need to see this movie. It is so amazing. Yeah. And like Jen says, it's a classic. It touches on everything. And the the society that they're in talking about baseball and how it shaped their society early on. And it got America. gypped. It, got, it fell short. Right. right. So there's a lot of wounds there to be healed. And that's what Kinsella is doing. And I would say if you're not super into baseball, it really isn't about the baseball. But you know how it is. 
it's still worth it. There, it, it makes it the relatability. Exactly. It could be anything. Right. I would argue it couldn't be football because that's too violent. <laughs> <laughs> Baseball is the pastime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which So which do you have a favorite of the type of hero? I feel like I'm really compelled by the anti-hero. Okay. Because it assumes that society has gone wrong and mm. they must now work under society to do what's right. Interesting. Interesting. We're used to the high society being the ones who we look up to, right? right. The politicians, the mentors, we assume that they live up there on the pedestal, right. but that's not our world anymore. Yeah. If anything, they're the shadow. The shadow has climbed to the top. Yeah. So now we rely on the vigilante hero to save us because we can be them. That's even better. We can do what they're doing if we were brave enough. Right. Because that means going against the higher authority. Yeah. Because we may have a better moral. And we know that we're just scared to act as like Batman does, for example. Right. Vigilante. Yeah. Under the radar or out of the law. Yeah. I like that. It's it's definitely in that gray area instead of the black and white. Yeah. Um, And the trickster sort of is the or an antagonist even is, is sort of the equivalent there. So it's really interesting. I think that's why people, including myself, are so like fascinated by the relationship between Batman and the Joker because they're both sort of antagonists in in a lot of ways. But it's like the levels. They're both gray. They're not just like Voldemort and Harry Potter, which is very black and white. Right. You're all evil. You've always been evil. I'm all good. I've always been good. Let's fight. Exactly. It's much more compelling in Shades of Grey. Yes. Does not Fifty Shades of them. Oh, gross. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you have a favorite? I, I really like the idea of the catalyst hero. I think I like that especially in literature because it's less, it's not as compelling to watch as it is to read for me. But I think, yeah, in, in film, visually, the antihero is always the most interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not super, I mean, I, I like the Ice Queen, you know, I'm not super into like, the one-sidedness of the hero who's just like always a hero i'm like really okay again that's not relatable in our time anymore so i'm glad we're creating these subcategories when we change they change it's not even like that's i know you just said this but it's not even like society is asking for it even now when things are so crazy and have been for many years since the orange man came to power (laughs) Like, people still aren't gravitating towards a central hero like they maybe would have in those old myths. There's still sort of this, like, unhappy or, like, traumatized hero or reluctant hero, I guess. But in all the super super film superhero movies, you know, we still get that kind of character, which I think is cool. Yeah. Agreed. So I believe we are going to wrap up. We will pick up next time. If you feel like sending us love, review us on iTunes. We didn't do that last episode. I totally forgot about it because we were like exhausted. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, com. We're on Twitter. You can say hi in person when the quarantine is over i don't know we have a first donor now to think as well we do we do do you want to talk about that no okay he's not related to me at all (laughs) we did get our first donor uh he's promised us his kidneys (laughs) (laughs) 
um jesse martinez thank you very much for your support it's charlotte's brother it he is charlotte's brother we appreciate it we are going to be naming the people that donate to us in every episode if you feel like donating you can check us out on patreon.com and we will thank you like we are jesse (laughs) which includes some perks by the way it does so for example jesse can give us a subject to talk about yes and we'll be like yeah we have to do it because you gave us money (laughs) so you can be like i don't know talk about fungi and underwater aquarium i don't know it is kind of fun i mean yeah he can uh i think he's on like the third tier or fourth tier he he like jumped up i was like damn jesse Uh, and that tier does come with, yeah, he can suggest a topic that he'd like us to talk about. We're hoping it excludes Star Trek because we're already going to do that. So, of course, that's a must. Don't waste your your Suggestions suggestion on yeah, on Star Trek because we're totally going to do that. <laughs> so thank you, Jesse. And thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Jen. And we'll be back next time. Bye. <laughs>